This is the Misdirected Mark Podcast, a podcast about gaming, game mastering, and entertaining you, our listeners. We are explicit, you have been warned, and I'd like to thank Mike Willard for letting us use his music on our show. Now let's pick up those mics and get on with this thing. Welcome to MM Plays 42. Tonight, we'll be discuss a bunch of small topics for your tabletop role-playing games. But first, my name is Jerry. I'm Chris. And I am Old Man Logan. What were we doing there? I don't... I don't that I... was our NPR voice. Oh, oh. That's, that's, that's this one. That's just like, and welcome to MM Plays 42. Tonight, we discuss a bunch of small topics in your TRPGs. But first, my name is Chris. Because that's how they always do it. That, that super... Super quiet, like almost whispery voice. It's so weird that NPR does that. That's quiet and smooth. Yeah, I know. I was, I was curious. Like, I, I get it now that you said that. Like, oh, I, I understand what you're going for. That's, that's good though. I'm, I'm, I like NPR voice. NPR voice. Okay, let's do some announcements before we get into this thing. I mentioned it last episode, but I'm going to mention it again. This idea of the polygamerous gathering. We are once again kicking around the idea of a gathering of gamers in Buffalo, New York next year. There is currently a thread in our Slack channel discussing it. If you'd like to get on the conversation, we'd love to hear your thoughts there. If you're not in the Slack channel, you can join. It's not very expensive. Our Patreon, it's like four bucks a month or something like that. The Slack room is really the thing that you get out of it. You get some other stuff, podcasts and whatnot, but that's, it's a fun place to talk to us. And the RPG channel is sometimes hopping if I'm in there talking about things and, you know, we, we talk about things. Anyways, if you're interested in attending something like this, tell us. We're curious. It's still in the very early stages, but if there's enough interest, and so far it seems like there is, then I think it's an idea worth going forward with. And I've, you know, put together conventions in the past and things like that, and this is not a convention. It's just a gathering of gamers. There you go. I have issues with running conventions. It gives me, gives me headaches. It makes me twitchy. <laughs> it's a problem. But, you know, you want to come out and just play some games, hang out with some cool people. We'd love to have you all out here. Next thing, the Adventure Cache. This is a new product from Encoded Designs. A bunch of other people in the network are kind of getting in on it. I know Jerry's writing one. Phil's got one. I've got two out there right now. These are system agnostic adventures that are between three and four pages. You can use them for an evening or two of play. The ones that are out there in our Grimjaw's Cavern, which is free, and the Curse of the Pumpkin Patch, which is available for the Queen's Court patrons right now, but it's also on Drive-Thru RPG for a few bucks. So is Grimjaw's Cavern on the Slack channel. You can, you can go pick it up. It's a great way to help us out around here at Mr. Mark Productions. It helps us replace gear, gives us better uh, chances to increase the quality of what we can produce around these parts. And believe me, I would like to produce some more quality parts. I mean, we got Marvel stuff coming next year. And I'd like to be able to spend more time and maybe buy some different uh, sound effects and things like that than what I have to, to put into that podcast for like the AP part. That being said, Bob, tell us about another show on Mr. Rector Mark Productions. That is a fabulous idea. Thanks. I should do that. I, I try to have fabulous ideas, but they're not all fabulous. But this one is super fabulous. So there's this little ditty called the Gnome Cast. The Gnome Cast. The Gnome Cast. This is where several gnomes from Gnome Stew, which, by the way, Gnome Stew, go look it up, Game Master Advice. Read it. Good times. Good stuff. Several gnomes from Gnome Stew, they get together and they talk about gaming topics and they talk about themselves as well and they do the whole thing to try and entertain you, the listener. It's very nice. Yes. There is an ulterior motive. Oh, yeah? If they're not entertaining, they get thrown in the stew pot. Yep. You do not want to get thrown into the stew pot. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you must be entertaining. That's true. So we got, we got a little gladiator thing going on here. You know? I got this number on my conical gnome hat. It's C46. Does that mean I'm clone 46? I don't know. Are the gnomes clones? I don't know. 
Are you a clone? As far as I know, I'm not a clone. I mean, I, I'm not a clone. I feel like I'm the original Bob. I feel like I'm the original Chris. Anyways, let's move on to the main segment. Clones are weird. No bumper for this one because it doesn't have a bumper topic because we're just doing a bunch of small topics. Small topics. Small topics. Small Misdirect, topics. Misdirected Mark Mishmash. Misdirected Mark Mishmash. That's pretty good, actually. This does not fall into the purview of our MM Play series. To be honest with y'all, me and Jerry were out of town, and uh, normally when we would come up with and write our uh, show notes for these things, we weren't around, so we managed to get one together, but we were having a really hard time, we were having a hard time getting the second one together. We had a bunch of small ideas, though. We had so, a lot of discussions over breakfast. Here's the first of the small topics that we're going to talk about, and uh, I know this one came up from Jerry. So, why you should have reliable narrators in your games, and maybe why you would have an unreliable narrator in your game. So, Jerry, why should we have reliable narrators in our games? Because the GM is is in control of all the information that comes out. So if you're doing a game, like an investigative game, and we actually talked about red herrings a couple weeks ago. We did. You've got to be careful when handing on information to give the players information that they can follow up on. If they don't trust the information that you're giving you, you're likely to have them not follow the information in a way that is beneficial to the story and the plot. Or they may simply just stop asking questions altogether. And it's things like the players ask a question. The GM says something like, okay, make a persuasion check. And you succeed. GM should avoid using terms too often, like could be, seems, maybe, you think it could be a possibility, and give them some concrete information. Or give them information that the players can then later on back up to see is actually true. The flip side of that is you give them information and they're like, well, we asked a question. We didn't get a concrete answer. Why are we bothering to answer this question, ask these questions anymore? Because we're being led in a wrong direction, which is, again, why can you have unreliable narrators? If they're the villain, if they're part of the plot, or if you need the story to slow down a little bit. Or if they didn't know what they saw was true. Mm-hmm. I mean, some people just don't remember things like eh, this is storytelling in a often live setting where we're not editing it. So there's the idea that you can ask somebody something and they won't remember quite the way that they thought. So, I mean, that's a, that's a place where you can reasonably have an unreliable narrator because you're asking a person, but your game master should probably never be an unreliable narrator because the game master, the eyes and ears of the characters. I am always of the opinion of saying like, you see X, you know X, you know Y. If you're not sure, if I think the character would not be sure, that's when I use those words. Mm-hmm. Seems like this, that, but then like, you're just not really a hundred percent sure, but this is what you think based on what you have. That being said, there needs to be somebody in your story that the players can trust 100% to give them information. Cause if everything they're getting from every NPC is misleading and that can frustrate your party, your players quite a bit. Yeah. That, I don't know. That's, that's pretty bad. There are some adventures that can, that can work out that way where it's not about everybody being misleading, but everybody not knowing the truth. And those are two different things, because if you as a game master are playing everybody like they're misleading, then the whole town's out to get you. And that's, that's a different kind of game. If it's just that nobody knows what's going on or knows the whole story of what's going on, that can be interesting because then you have a bunch of different facets of the kaleidoscope that becomes one image. If you're going to give out misleading information, it should at least lead the players in a direction where they can discover the proper information yeah, later on. I think we're, I think, I don't think we've defined misleading well enough. What do you mean by misleading? Incomplete or going the wrong way? Are we talking about red herring misleading? Are we talking about just not sure 100% what you heard is true misleading? It is hard to have this discussion yes. without knowing that. 
giving the players information that is deliberately incorrect. Because when the players try to interact with somebody, if it happens too often that the information they're given is repeatedly incorrect or doesn't actually answer the question that they're asking too often, like once in a while is okay. So, oh, so okay. let me stop you because yeah. now, now, we're, now we're, we're getting narrower. Yeah. That's fine. If you give out information that's incorrect every time, what is the reason behind it? That would be my next question in the adventure that we're writing. Because if everybody in the town is against you, then that eventually just leads you to believe that everybody in the town's against you, right. and then you know what your problem is. Right. If it's, I as a game master want to slow down my mystery, I probably wrote a bad mystery. Yes. So maybe don't do that then. Like, there's a, this is the problem with having these fairly, like, vague discussions about this stuff. They don't mean anything until we really pare them down to find out what we're really talking about. So let me give you an example. Things like, somebody's murdered out in the woods. We think the person who murdered them planned it ahead of time. You're the person who sold them ropes and uh, shovels. So do you know when they bought the ropes and shovels? Was it before or after this date? The NPC might be, well, I'm not really sure. That's mm -hmm. fine. They might not know that. But, and then you should follow it up with something factual that will lead the players in the right direction. It doesn't have to be, doesn't have to answer their question. But it's like, I, if the players succeed at their role and so on, I don't remember when they came here, but either I remember this or, you know, I know that so-and-so might know that information. Or they give you a date range to narrow it down. Exactly. Something like that. The information, you're still not giving them the exact answer they need to solve the mystery, but you're at least giving them something that leads them to the next part of the mystery instead of just telling, instead of just, it's a dead end or it's unreliable. The unreliable part is they're just a dead end. Yeah. Okay. You can't have infinite dead ends in a mystery. That makes sense. Don't have infinite dead ends in your mystery. That's a problem. If you have a, if you've written a mystery like that, you've messed up. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. You've broken the scenario. I'm with you. That makes perfect sense. Also, when things are put out that are deliberately misleading, which is understandable. Sometimes you have that in a situation where the players, everybody talks about seeing a bunch of dogs and one of the NPCs in town has a bunch of dogs, but it turns out that NPCs not actually involved because whatever we saw were dogs were actually, you know, chaos wolfhounds, but you haven't seen those yet in the game. If that happens too often, you're deliberately pointing the players at a red herring. And if that happens too often, and the players never have a chance to find out that there's something else going on until it blows up in their face, that's also deliberately misleading. Well, let's so, talk yeah. about how that actually works out then. Okay, please. So if you have the dogs, the version of the dogs, and they're like, oh, dog person, right? Maybe mm -hmm. it was a dog person. I like, I like these little thought exercises. Mm -hmm. You go in and talk to the dog person, the dog person's like, I wasn't anywhere near there. And then somebody can corroborate the, the story that the dog person was never near there with the dogs. Then it's probably not the dogs. But then you need to have another clue. It's like, oh man, we found some prints in the woods. These don't look like dog prints. They look like wolf prints. Yep. We can now eliminate the dogs as a suspect. There's a clue that is not necessarily, it's like sort of a red herring, but it's like you need to eliminate option A so that we can move on to option B. Yes. Being able to eliminate dead ends is a good thing. And sometimes misleading stuff can help you do that. If it, like you said, like, well, like I was talking about, like as long as the misleading information eventually allows you to eliminate a dead end at some point. Yeah. We're talking about how it's important to have reliable information that you can eventually use to narrow down because we're not writing mysteries, we're playing mysteries. Correct. It's okay if somebody lies to you, as long as you can suss out their lying and then go back to them and be like, why did you lie to me? Yes. See, that's, that's a classic TV procedural trope, which is fun, right, Bob? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's Columbo. 
Yeah, that's that's all the parlor mysteries. Like you're eliminating suspects by finding out the truth about these suspects. You find the person that's lying to you, then you have to find out why they're lying to you. And that could not it could be because not because they're involved, but because they're trying to hide some different secret, mm-hmm. which is also perfectly reasonable. Those are how you have your unreliable slash reliable narrators in your game and make them, I think, function mm-hmm. in a, in a meaningful way. I like that chat. Anybody else have anything to say about this idea of unreliable reliable narrators? It very much dovetails into our, our red herring discussion from a few weeks ago. Let's talk about getting a game to the table fast. You ever gotten a game to a table in less than 24 hours since you bought it? Yes. Yeah, me too. It's fun. Uh, no. No? <laughs> so I did the Marvel Heroic role-playing game. I did it in less than 24 hours. We had a great time playing it, and Jerry can tell you that we had a great time playing it. I don't have to tell you. Yes. Uh, you can ask Ange sometime, too. She played. I will just say the Marvel Heroic role-playing, the Marvel, is that what it's called now? Mar- no, sorry, not Marvel Heroic. That's the Cortex version. Yeah. I, my, my apologies, everybody. The Marvel Multiverse role-playing game is the actual name of the game, but I keep screwing it up because I keep saying the other name. Marvel Multiverse role-playing game. I got it to the table in 24 hours. I'll say that the Marvel Multiverse role-playing game, and this is from somebody who has been playing superhero role-playing games since 1980 and has played probably more superhero game hours than any other game out there. I would say the Marvel Multiverse role-playing game feels the most like a superhero comic book or movie superhero game. Having played for three hours. Hands down. Yeah. Like, there was nothing about it that didn't feel like you were playing in a superhero comic book. That makes me sound uh, interested. I mean, I will talk about it in the after show or in one of our off-the-cuff something. You'll hear, it's bonus content. We'll talk about the Marvel Multiverse multiverse role-playing game. But... For this, how did I get at the table so fast? Well, when I played the game with Matt Forbeck. Thank you. I, I mean, start with that. Thank you. <laughs> that, that makes it a little bit easier. So yeah, somebody taught me. the lead on that. Somebody one. taught me the game, right? The guy who designed the game taught me the game. It wasn't a great session of play. It was really fun to sit and talk to Matt Forbeck for like an hour and a half afterwards <laughs> about like the role playing game and why he made the choices he made. If you could do that, you're going to shortcut a bunch of stuff. If you're not going to do that, you need to read the rules and figure out how they work. Then you need to read some character sheets and figure out how they work. I did that. Then I went to ChatGPT. I was like, give me a Marvel... Actually, I had to ask it a few times. Give me a phase rip scenario. Because whenever I put multiverse in there, it kept thinking that I wasn't talking about the role-playing game. And it kept giving me multiverse scenarios. I'm like, stop it. I just want, I want a not multiverse scenario. So I had to have it tell it to give me a phase rip scenario. So I got a phase rip scenario. I looked at the outline. I'm like, cool, that's a game. I did 15 minutes of research trying to fill in the, the, the generic stuff to put Marvel stuff in there. And then I had a scenario. Then I just had to go find the character profiles that I wanted to use for the game, make a couple of modifications, and then I had to print out character sheets. And let me tell you, that was the hardest part because the character stuff on Demiplane isn't up there yet. So, like, I had to go print out the character profiles, which are not, like, print-friendly or print-ready, really, because they don't have that part done on Demiplane yet. And I printed out, like, ten of them. And then I had them, and then I'm looking at them, and I'm like man, some of these abilities need to actually be on the sheets. (laughs) Like, Mm. like you can't just uh, intuit what they are. So then I went through and I wrote out on each of the character sheets in the margins all of the abilities for that that needed to go on there. And let me tell you, that taught me the mechanics of the game, how the design of the mechanics work in the game. So when things came up that I had to slightly adjudicate, I knew how to adjudicate them because I knew how the game functioned. It's not a very complicated game. That's the other thing. Like, this is not a complicated game. It's easy to get to the table. The core mechanic is pretty much the mechanic for the game, and there's not a lot of other stuff going on. It's pretty simple stuff. This is for people that don't play role-playing games, to get them into playing role-playing games. That's what this game is all about. Gotcha. One thing that, for me, always learning a game real quick is read the rules, 
read through character generation, and as long as character generation isn't super complicated, build a character. Even if you're not going to use it in your game, build a character, because for me, oftentimes, a lot of games, building a character and realizing what choices you have to make when you build that character will teach you a little bit about the mechanics and what's important and what's not going to be important for your first game session. You don't need to know what, what happens at 20th level. You just need to know what happens with your base building character. And even if you're going to build a character who is fifth level in quotation marks or something, just building that character out a little bit will teach you what, what the game designers had in mind and what the player is going to be looking at. You know, how do we build our, our stats? How do we build our abilities? What choices did we make? That sort of thing. Um, don't go overly complicated, but building a simple character or in Chris's case, taking the character and, and defining out all the abilities teaches you a lot about the mechanics of the game and how they interact with each other. It really helps. I like those. I like that a lot. I gave you the Marvel multiverse version, but what Jerry said is the more genericized version of that. Like, mm -hmm. read the core rules, make a character or two. If you've got some time, even like go through the mechanic yourself a couple times so you can see how it works. I mean, I, I played the game. So, I mean, I, I was cheating. Like, I, uh, I cheated for sure. I played the game. Had somebody teach me how it worked. That's how I would go about doing it. That is the fast way to getting, getting a game to the table quickly. The first game I had to do that with was Barbarian Lemuria. I'd played it at a, at a mini-con, and then two weeks later I was at a different convention, and we suddenly had like an eight-hour gap when all of our games got canceled. So I quickly downloaded the game, read through it, took a bunch of three-by-five cards, created a half-dozen characters, and then pretty much just kind of scrapped together a pulp adventure, because Barbarian Lemuria is pretty loosely defined. Mm -hmm. And then the players that did sit down, the ones that came early, I gave them 10 minutes, and I said, we've got 10 minutes if you want to build your own character and had them walk and just walked them through that again. And that taught me, number one, what the game was going to be, and also kind of told me what kind of characters they wanted to play so I could quickly rewrite little chunks of my adventure and cross stuff off. Sure, so, makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. But that's how I got a game to the table fast, same way. We didn't have chat GPT back then. Mm -hmm. uh, would have been a lot easier now if I would have just said, make me a pulp barbarian adventure. Would have been nice. Yeah, there, there, I'm sure there's been other times where I've like brought a, table, a game to the table like rapidly. Mm -hmm. like, but that was the first time I think I've done it yeah. in less than like, I think I did in like 12, in like 20 hours. I would say that when you're reading through the game and you're looking at the like core mechanics and everything like that, take a look at what the complexity is. If you've got a game that, for example, say has multiple subsystems and you want to get this game to the table quickly, do not try to engage every subsystem right away. Yes. Leave them behind temporarily. If it's like, oh, you know, we have this core mechanic for investigative stuff and then we have like this little subsystem for chases and we have this other little subsystem for this and we whatever do the investigative stuff do your character creation and your and your character interactions get the table talking to each other those kind of things focus on one thing get it going and then you can start folding in the new stuff as you go once you've actually got it started. Yeah, maybe not in that first session. Yeah. You can run a cyberpunk game without Netrunners. Yes. You can run a sci-fi game with where, where there's only one psionic power and keep all the, everything out. Yeah. Run Star Wars without Jedis. Absolutely. If your space game has the potential to do starship combat, but that's not the main focus, don't do a starship yeah, combat in the first sure. session. That's exactly it. So pare it down, focus. That'll help you get it to the table. Quick. All good ideas there. Let's do the next one. Uh, what makes a good demo game? Demo means demonstration. It's mm -hmm. a shortcut, right? If you are trying to demonstrate what the game does to a particular group of people, then you need to hyper-focus 
This is the core loop of the game. This is what the game is about. Let's do that. If it has a very detailed character creation system, but once you've got characters created, your core loop and your, and your other stuff basically informs play, don't go through the whole character creation system that's going to take an hour, hour and a half. Whatever. That, that ain't if you want to demo the game, you sit down and you say, here's some characters, have some notes on the character sheets that describe some of the things to make it easier for the players to understand them, and then say, okay, we're going to do this. Which I would say, anything that isn't obvious should be fully defined on that character sheet. Mm-hmm. Like if you've got a special ability, even if it's something that every other character has, it should be defined on the, on the character sheet somewhere. The players shouldn't have to ask questions about what this ability is. It doesn't have to be 10 paragraphs. It should just be, this is what it is, this is what it mechanically does, and this is how it's going to be affected in this part of the game. I'm with you. I played a one-hour demo game. The GM gave us a minute or less of setting and then just dropped us into, you're basically standing outside of a room that's got treasure in it, what are you going to do? Yeah. And then the encounter... Because the GM had pre-generated characters, the GM quickly looked at which characters we had, crossed off the stuff that had nothing to do with them in his little story, or his little encounter, and then made sure that when setting up that encounter and taking the first turn of the encounter, it was set up in such a way that each of the players was going to get a chance to do the thing that their character should know how to do in that encounter. The wizard got a chance to cast a spell, the rogue got a chance to evade, the fighters got a chance to be tough, and so on. And so in that little hour, the idea was engage the core mechanic, show the players what is different about each character and what their, how to use their one or two special abilities and, do, and set up your um, encounter in such a way that even without telling the players you should do this, it becomes obvious, oh, this is a place I can do this. That takes a little bit of GMing skill, but you set up the bad guy so that his back is facing the rogue or something like that. The rogue's like, oh, I can backstab here or whatever. That is something I think that helps a demo work and helps you get a chance for everybody to do everything in a very short amount of time. What makes a good demo game? A good demo game for me is something, a game that shows off all the primary features of the game itself. I played Morkborg. It was Pirate Borg. It was three hours long. It showed me all of the things of the game that were, that were interesting. We made characters. It took five minutes. <laughs> we started playing the game. There was a combat. We fought some stuff. It showed off the combat stuff. I was like paying attention to everybody. Like somebody was a spell cat. There was a couple of spell casters, a couple of miracle workers. I was a fighter with a swashbuckler with some, some special abilities. I got to see some of the pieces of the game, like in action, mm-hmm. like, okay, this is cool. Uh, after that, there was like a crash, the ship crashed. And then there were some checks to see if any of us just drowned. So like, oh yeah, game's deadly. Cool. Get that. We woke up on C. We leveled up. He f- gave us a level up so we could see how the level up rules worked. That's cool. So cool. like I got the level up rules also took five minutes to level up a character. That is a thing. If your game level up process yeah. can take five, take five minutes or less, you want to highlight that. Correct. Like yes. it was highlighting these features of the yep. game that mm-hmm. were like, oh, this is smart. what this game does smart. This is what this game is good at. This is how this game moves along. We split up and started doing things like trying to get food together because when we leveled up, we also had like an, like the, the, the reset, they call it resets in that game. If you don't have enough food, you don't get your hit points back, or you could potentially start losing hit points, but or you get less hit points than you normally would get. So some of us started scavenging, some of us started making a raft, some of us started like looking around this island that we were moving down for the thing that we were looking for from this map. That showed off how the game works when you split up, right? Like, oh, I'm like, that's cool. It's pretty easy. 
oh yeah, and the combat had side initiative. So I'm like, oh, this is fast. It moves pretty quick. We sailed to the sea and then we dealt with a trap. We saw, I saw how the mechanics for a trap could potentially work where there was a thing where like the first person went in, it was the highest difficulty. The next person went in, it got lower and lower and lower. Like, oh, you're showing me a mechanic because he explained the mechanic. I'm like, I see what you're doing. You're teaching me this game and how it can function. Then we got to the end and we fought something that was unhurtable. And I'm like, okay, there are unhurtable monsters in this game that you need to do a trick or something like that to deal with, which we had to get the scepter from a different sarcophagus to present to him to like deal with this particular threat that was way beyond anything that we could handle. I'm like, I understand all the pieces of this game. Yep. So when you guys are, you guys, you guys said all the things that I am now talking about, yep. like demonstrate the things about your game that are cool. Yep. Yeah. And that, that are the reasons that I would want to buy it. Good stuff. I'm with you. I just, that, that was my example of all the things that you were yeah, saying. That was, like, that was good. This is how the, this is that, that was a good demo game. It was three hours. I understand how a, a board game, not just pirate board, but probably how most board games work now. I was impressed that our game, we had an hour. Our entire demo yeah. was an hour. Four players. And the GM managed to, I mean, it was only a encounter really, mm -hmm. but managed to get all the stuff in there. But I was watching what they were doing, how they were doing it, how they adjusted things. And you can learn a lot from watching how, how a good GM runs a game. You can. And watching how somebody runs a demo and what's left out. So, mm -hmm. that was I really agree. Good. Last of our small topics, setting design. What do you actually need to get started and how to grab onto that as a player? And this could be for campaign or one shot or whatever. To me, what, what I need for setting design to get started is I need the genre so I know what, what we're doing. I need what I'm doing in the campaign or the one shot or whatever it is. Like, what are we actually doing? Like, is it a dungeon crawl? Is it a whatever it is? Is it an investigation? I need to know what's important to the characters, but whether it's the framework for the characters that they're inside of, like if they're part of an adventuring company or whatever, or the characters themselves. And then I need to know what's important to that scenario, especially the first one, if it's a campaign, like, what are we doing? I don't need to draw out the whole continent if we're in a city and in one dungeon inside the city. Like, all I need is a couple of places in the city, some NPCs in the dungeon. That's me. What about you guys? Do you need more than what I said? Do you need less than what I said? It feels like a solid list. That seems like the right list. Yeah. Have some ideas as a GM where you're going to go with it after that. Yeah. Have, yeah, have, some, have some goal in mind um, in case the players ask questions that are larger reaching than just the initial scenario yeah that, I, I, that's the what are you doing in the campaign right like expanded yeah but i think that other than that, i think you've got that pretty much now i mean that's pretty much what you need to set up a campaign yeah if we were doing a longer setting or a longer discussion about this i would start defining all these things like well genre has a bunch of tropes that are associated with it right so mm -hmm. that that'll tell me yeah go ahead give me something interesting about this setting doesn't it be super detailed but give me something that's interesting that as a player, I want to know what's interesting about this setting. As a GM, yeah. what do I find interesting about this setting? What makes the realms different than Dragonlance, different than Greyhawk, different than from Mistara? That is missing from my list. That's a yeah. good one. And make it simple. It shouldn't be, I'm going to tell you the 20-page the history of Dragonlance. And if you have that one interesting fact, it's yeah. give them the fact. They don't need to know the whole backstory yeah. behind it. They don't need to know its origin. They can discover that later, especially if it piques their interest. Like, oh, that's really cool. Oh, yeah, man. Children of the Shroud. Everybody's got a magic weapon. Yeah. These are like anybody who's magical essentially has a magic weapon that yeah. does something. Yeah. Dragonlance. There are no dragons. There are no gods. And the world is a mess right now. Yeah. Except it's called Dragonlance. So sure as shit, there's going to be some dragons at some point. And hopefully a lance. Yeah. Hopefully <laughs> a lance. And maybe a, maybe a Pelina on the other one. Anyway. That, um, <laughs> stir Hi, stick. my name is Lance. That doesn't count. We now need a t-shirt where there is 
a lance with a paladin on the end of it. Now, we can't say Sturm and a stick, but we all know what it means. Yeah. You know, now, if you're going to be called Lance, then we're going to tie a rope around your leg and pull you behind the cart. I know you're referencing something, but I'm not sure what you're referencing. Because we're Dragon Lance. Dragon. Oh, oh God. God. I'm hurting right now. Oh, Jerry, you just killed everybody. Thank We're you. just all destroyed. 50 points of pun damage. Oh, what? A I am evil, Jerry. What else is interesting? We got a lot for children's shots. Phil needs a lot to write adventures. Like, he needs his own background setting to write adventures. I'm not that way. I don't need the whole thing. Like, I just need stuff to start with, and I'll just build around that. There's so many different ways to do it, right? Yeah. Like, I, I'm not sure what you, what your what your methodology is, Jerry. Like, I also like to table source a little bit. Ask, sure. Ask questions to players, especially if you've got a little time before we're going to get to table, like session zero stuff, mm -hmm. um, or even before session zero. If you can ask the players each, you know, one or two simple questions that will help give you some idea of what they're going to want to focus on in the in the first adventure mm -hmm. or the first campaign. You know, okay, you're in a world where everybody can fly for some reason. Yeah. Or what did your family do for a living and how is flying making that important to them? Yeah. Or, or something like, like that. Sure. Like, it, or, or why are you adventuring? Whatever it is. I'm just, I'm just grabbing no, straws no, on this that, one. That's yeah. fine. <laughs> I did that for the Eladara game in a number of different places. With Bob's character, it wasn't right at the beginning, but to get started for Alvar, the Alvar arc, I needed Bob to tell me about his culture. Yeah. Because I didn't want to do it myself. I could have dictated all that stuff, but it was made more interesting that he was the character there. And if he told me about it, then he would know. So we built it together. So I actually needed to do some stuff and get some things down about who these Alvarim people were before we started playing in that area, which is like, they're not infused with fire elementals anymore because the Typhlings in that world were infused with fire elementals because the whole world's all about elements. Yeah. And it didn't make sense that they'd be infused with demons, mm -hmm. right? Or made deals with demons or devils mm -hmm. or what devils in standard stock D&D. So there's that. We should have gotten into it about the Elvish people. We talked a little bit about the Crosswater Adventuring Company. There's some stories about that. We don't remember because it was a year ago. All that stuff matters. For the Children of the Shroud game, Phil came up with a bunch of material and stuff, but we got together in our, in our pre-session zero or whatever, and we talked about what we wanted to have in that setting. Mm -hmm. Like, we a answered a bunch of questions. And then even after that, I was like, man, there's not a space in here for magical humans, which was messing with my character concept. So I'm like, Phil, man, what about the magical humans? Like, what role do they play? Where is their, their higher level people? And that's what I'm going to be. So hook me up here. Let's figure this out. Depending on what you need to get started, because some people need more, some people need less. Like, yeah. those are important things, especially if you have character concepts that you've already talked about, and then you see the background material, and you're like, that doesn't fit. I thought we had a discussion. Like, you know, then you just fix it, right? Mm -hmm. just fix mm -hmm. things. I think that's all. I, I love asking questions. I like sourcing the table. I like working with players on that stuff, especially when it's about their characters. I'm a big fan of that as well as a player. And if I ever run anything down the road, which it's, I keep telling myself in the back of my brain, one day I will. <laughs> um, but that, that is a thing that I will definitely do. Slight tangent. I keep having these ideas roll through my head for certain things that I'd like to do in a campaign. Mm -hmm. There was a point where I was like, I would really like to have dwarves. And I said, they're not just another species that like, oh, everybody likes, you know, hanging out with dwarves. Like I said, the dwarves are the evil ones oh, okay. in this campaign. And I want somebody else that's normally used as a bad guy. I want them to be good guys. Sure. So I took giants in my brain and I said, okay, the giants are good guys. The dwarves are bad guys. They still don't like each other. Yeah, it makes sense. And away we go. And it occurred to me. The whole table sourcing, getting input from other players, instead of me coming up, hey, we're going to run a campaign and I want giants to be good and I want dwarves to be evil, might be a better idea to come to the table and say, for this campaign, I want one of the conceits to be 
one of the standard good guy groups is bad, and one of the standard bad guy groups is evil. What do you think? Yeah, you could, you could totally do that. I, I, I think that's fine. Because mm-hmm. again, anytime you give the players input, you get more investment, and sometimes I think so. They will surprise you with something. It's true. That turns out way better than the idea that you originally had. I think that's a great idea. If you did say dwarves, dwarves and giants, the first thing I'm doing is like, can I play? Can I play a giant? Can I play, Hell yeah. can I, can I play a giant? <laughs> Hell yeah! I, I, I had that sort of backfire on me when I was running my fusion fantasy game. Is that one of the major races in the world were lamias? All of the lamias the players encountered as NPCs in the game. We're all pretty organized, pretty friendly, pretty supportive of the, of the team's things, often acting as patrons. And then one of my players decided they wanted to run a little side adventure for us in the game. So they're going to GM the game. So they're like, I've got this little scenario. It's going to be like a little one shot. One of their players is like, well, I want to play a Lamia and so on. And I'm like, I've got a problem in this because what none of the players knew, the Lamias were all the big bads in the game. Yes. And that everything they'd been doing it was all a front. was all a front. That's funny. <laughs> And now I've got to tell the other player, I'm like, okay, there's some stuff you need to know here. Yeah. You don't have to, you didn't, you know, the funny thing is you didn't have to tell them. You could have just retconned it in your mind. Like, like, oh, they're just being friendly because they're good guys. Well, one of the players wanted to play a Lamia and I'm like, that's what I mean. Yeah. Just let them play the Lamia and be like, if you never he's tell them, then they guy. think he's just a good guy because yeah. he's just pretending. Yeah. We actually did. I think I've talked about this. We actually did an entirely table sourced game where we you did we, we table sourced all that. You told that. me about it. That's that's a little much for me. And that was well, it was it was an experiment. And part of the thing was trying to figure out, just like Bob said, like this species is in the game. What do we want to actually do about it? Goblins are the most prevalent species, and they're the most civilized. That came out of our our random dice rolls. What does that mean? What does goblin culture look like? We had a long talk about that. That's okay to do, but you need to have that up front. No, that was. There's oh, a lot of campaign I, building. I there. love I love me some quality experimentation and role playing games. Yeah. I find that one to be fascinating. It's like a setting design thing. Like we're gonna build this setting ourselves. Like that is a lot though. Yeah. Right. Yes. Like yeah. and then that's what I'm saying. Like yeah. that that was a that was a, a major it, undertaking. It is a whole game in and of itself. Yep. Like let's build the setting. Then we'll maybe we'll, we'll play a game yeah. in the setting. Like it's yeah. fine. Yeah. We, we did session minus one that was just everybody at the table doing that. Mm-hmm. And then I told everybody, okay, we're gonna do session zero in six weeks. Because it's going to take me that long to take all the stuff we came up with yeah. and make a coherent campaign <laughs> yeah. world out of it and everything. To continually tangent here, our D&D game has some of that going on where, except instead of you giving like, build the whole setting, I'm like, I'm going to give you all these pockets to build eventually. You could tell me stuff about them later so that we can flesh out these pieces. Because I know the world and there's like the overarching stuff, and, yeah. but I don't have every culture defined. Like, uh, it's too much effort for something that's never going to see the light of day that I'm not doing for, yeah. for cash. It's not, it's also not my favorite hobby. Like setting building is not my favorite hobby. I like it. It's good enough, but I mean, I'm there to play the game. So I understand that. If you're trying to fill in gaps, I will, I will do a little plug here real quick. It's still probably available on DriveThruRPG. The second edition World Builders Guidebook is really fun to use. It's designed so that every chapter is a different layer of world building. So if you know what you've got, like, hey, I've got a town, you can just go to the chapter on towns. They actually have a whole bunch of forms you can fill in. They just kind of keep track of your notes. But go to the section on towns, fill in the stuff that you need, read through it, make sure you're not skipping anything. And then you can expand outward from there. You can go down to individual things or go as, up as far as what's the, what are the deities and all that. And they give you a bunch of examples, but there's also a bunch of fun random tables if you just want to mm. mess with your world. It's kind of neat. It gives you some interesting ideas. And this goes back to some things they've talked about with Chris and I attended a seminar this weekend where the person giving it 
Sean Merwin. Yeah, Merwin, man. Yeah, Sean Merwin. Go, go listen yeah. to the Eldritch Lorecast and Mastering Dungeons. Good shows. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You start out by saying, like, if your first adventure takes place in a town and there's a baron, you just need the baron's name and what he's doing. You don't need the stats on him. You don't know how many guards he's got, all that kind of stuff. That's good for initial setting. Yeah. yeah, especially if the baron isn't, like, integral to the adventure that's going on. Like I said, here's the city, here's the dungeon, here's the name of the kingdom. Let's yep. go. You don't need to know what's in the mountains over there. You nope. don't need to know what's at the end of that river. Mm-hmm. That will come later. Yep. Yeah, I mean, if you want to do top-down, like if you're running yeah. a campaign, and that's fine. Like, if you have clerics and you need to know who the gods are and whatnot, then you, you kind of need the gods. Yep. If uh, Paladins, too. If you don't have gods, then you probably need to tell the players that. <laughs> if you have special magic, then you probably need to tell the players that and have it designed and, and set there. And if the gods aren't super important to the first adventure, you can even say you're a cleric. What are you a cleric of? Um, the cleric of nature. Okay, who's the god of nature? Me, yeah, you could do that if you me, want to. Give me three bullet points about their faith and that's it. Absolutely. There you go. Totally, totally legitimate. I'll yep. tell you what, that, that player is now invested in your, in your setting too, mm-hmm. by the way. That wouldn't fly with my setting, but it would totally <laughs> fly with no setting. Yeah. Absolutely. hundred percent. Do we have another small topic to add onto the list? No, that's it. I think we're done. So, uh, right. I, I think we're, I think we're done. Oh, you go do something else and take a, take a walk. Go get a, get Thank a, you for listening to Misdirected Mark Plays. Now let's do some Patreon shout outs before we get out of here. Let's start with the Royal Court, the Polish Ogre, who's our very own Polish Ogre, Lars Henrik Evjan, the Lord Out of Time, Jim, the Royal Merchant Emeritus, Chromatic Chameleon, the Queen's Spy Mistress, JT Evans, the Queen's Librarian, Schmitty, the Keeper of the Labyrinth, Andrew Dacey, the Warden of Whiskies, John Carney, the Court Necromancer, Craig, the Lord of One Name, Tiberius Starcrash Smith, the Baron of Britannia, Eric Bontz, the Weregator, Kevin Lovecraft, the Royal Beard. Now we have some other patrons who are about to get their shout out. John, Chris Constantine, Miko Froilich, Eric Simon, Athelis, not that Billy Mitchell, Fiona, Kathleen Halperin, Christopher Gamelk, Michael Beck Esperum, Joseph Knoll, Carlos Heptilemma, Michael Draper, Alice Kira, Jim Fitzpatrick, Brentley Harris, Steve Radabaugh, Rory McLeod, Ninjabi, Richard Wyatt, Joseph Peralta, Brian Kurtz, my Brett, not my Brett, but somebody's Brett, Chris Steele, Jared Rasher, the Deliverator, he belongs to an Elite Order, a hallowed subcategory, Bridget, Kubanu, Eileen Barnes, and Brandon Barnes. Thank you so much for being our patrons. If you'd like more content like this, you can check it out at misdirectedmark.com. If you are interested in supporting this show and other shows on Misdirected Mark Productions, you can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com mmp. You can get a whole bunch of stuff there, including extra bonus podcast episodes, material concerning this game, The Children of the Shroud. That includes character sheets, our game rules, some of our setting stuff, and Phil's thoughts from behind the screen. If that's not your thing, you can check out a bunch of other podcasts on misdirectedmark.com. There's Pandas Talking Games with Bill and Senda. They talk about a whole bunch of games, so it's like card talk for your role-playing game. You can go check out the Gnome Cast, where a bunch of gnomes get together to try to avoid being thrown into the stew by giving quality game mastering advice. Or you can listen to Thaco with Advantage, where Ange and Jared talk about D&D. They're going to talk about it anyway, so they might as well record it. Thank you for joining us. This has been a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. Mic drop, we out.